Great. So we just thought we'd, we'd start out the meeting, maybe just giving a kind of recap about where we're at with the, the markets themselves. And after talking about the markets, we'll, we'll move into the economy because that's often, you know, when we, we often don't kind of think about the markets, we look around and we see the economy and think that's what leads into the markets. But the two of them are a little, are pretty related right now, but it, it's a good place to start just talking about the markets. So, uh, year to date, the markets have kind of been on a, on a tear. Uh, everything is, is starting pretty quickly this year. I guess we're almost halfway through the year already, which is kind of amazing to, to think, but we're, we've seen the S&P start the year off up around 12% year to date. We have the Dow up 13%. And in the past several years, the Dow has been kind of the lagging market and is very much a leader of the, the larger markets currently. Uh, small cap stocks, uh, people, the small companies should benefit from the reopening of the economy. And small cap stocks are up around 18% this year, year to date, uh, small cap U.S. that is. Uh, it's the the international markets also performing pretty well. Uh, we have Japan up 8% year to date, Europe up around 14%. And the lagging is the emerging markets, which are up only around 6% as they have more difficulties working and containing sort of the impacts of the coronavirus. Um, so that's where we're at with the markets uh, overall. And a lot of the themes that we're seeing in the markets are a result of what people are seeing in the economy. And we're seeing some real, real changes in terms of people getting back to work, the economy reopening, people, people spending money. And so we thought a, a good place to, to start here would just be talking about employment and, and jobs and where we're at right now with, uh, what people are kind of doing with their lives, I guess, to, to earn money and make a living. So uh, I know Najoni, we're going to put her on the spot right away. And those who haven't met Najoni, she's the newest member of our team, although she's been with us for a while now. Uh, but she had done some research on the job numbers, and it's great to have her participate. Yes. Hi, everyone. So for those of you who haven't met yet, and I think I've actually met most of you at this point in some way, shape, or form, whether that's over the phone or from coming into the office. But so, yeah, I'm going to just talk about some of the jobs numbers and unemployment and things like that. So, you know, as of May, the unemployment rate is actually down to 5.8%. So, you know, it's a, it's a line of recovery, but it has been slower than what's been expected. And I think the biggest thing about that is, you know, the, the long-term employment is sitting at 40.9% of the total unemployed. Um, and so we're seeing, Long-term employment is increasing. There's more jobs available. There's 9.3 million job openings, so much more than there was even before pre-pandemic levels, but they're not getting filled in certain sectors like leisure and hospitality, you know, with the market reopening are have the most demand for jobs coming in. And they're also having the most trouble finding any willing applicants at the moment. You know, jobs are having, you know, employers are having to get really creative, you know, offer higher wages, signing bonuses. And, you know, in some cases within like 25 states around the country are starting to cut off those federal pandemic unemployment benefits, which offer 300 extra dollars a week, 
They offer benefits to gig workers and some people who are self-employed that may have not been offered at a state level before. And so in some cases, those people will be losing their benefits entirely. But in some ways, it's it's kind of a move towards incentivizing people to go back to work if they're finding that, you know, unemployment is paying them more than maybe their job did before the pandemic. And I think I think personally, and maybe all of you can relate to this as well, I have noticed the change in employment locally in Santa Fe. You can see restaurants struggling to hire employees without offering signing bonuses and higher wages. And many are in a position where they really need to close for part of the week because they just don't have enough employees to operate full time and they're just not getting applicants. And so it's, it's hard to say that, you know, if, if you cut off these federal employment benefits, whether or not it'll bring people back to work, it probably will help with the labor shortage. But then, you know, for those people who are really finding it difficult to get a job, they're going to be left in a really unfortunate position. But that's where we're standing right now. And it's good to see that we do have more jobs being offered because that's showing that the economy is opening back up. And, you know, we're seeing just the availability is here. And right now, People who are looking for employment have the upper hand. So that's where we Great. stand. Thank you, Najoni. Actually, a, a really interesting statistic that, that I read today is that the people that are staying on unemployment for the longest period of time are actually males with college degrees who had higher paying jobs prior to the pandemic. So meaning that those workers who have more of a more of a savings account, more of an ability to be choosy about the type of jobs they take, are those workers that are staying on unemployment for longer periods of time. Although it's still impacting, you know, there's still an impact on restaurant and retail workers. Uh, that is the category that's most utilizing unemployment benefits currently. So why don't we tie the employment situation uh, in with uh, uh, inflation? Uh, is there wage inflation? Is there asset inflation? The the numbers that we see in the stock market and in real estate prices, uh, and, uh, and especially building the building trades, uh, material prices. Um, the availability of labor and of materials have both uh, experienced an incredible surge. So how do, what does that mean for long-term inflation? What are the dangers uh, or what are the opportunities, Kyle, do you think, in, in terms of that tie-in? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's really interesting to see that, you know, I mean, inflation hit 4.3% in April, and obviously the inflation that, most of us see we see lumber prices up 300% over the over the last year right and so 300% obviously a much larger number than than 4.3% so there's a lot of areas in the economy which are inflating at a faster rate uh, jeff gave a, a great analogy when he's buys this was buying fiberboard for i believe a chicken coop or a lamb staller or a lamb shed a lamb yes. shed. There we go. Yes, we, we had uh, we had uh, a baby lamb born, so the male had to get moved out, so he wouldn't be mean to the the little baby. And so uh, I went to go buy OSB panel board at Home Depot. Typically, it runs about sixteen bucks. They were sixty dollars a sheet. 
and uh, metal is in uh, more uh, dire straits than wood. If you go to buy steel or metal lathe uh, for stucco, it's not in stock. Home Depot, Lowe's, totally out. So we have these severe supply restrictions that are somewhat based uh, on the COVID shutdown of factories. Um, there are other factors as well. The tariffs, uh, if you remember a year or a year and a half ago, we were in a trade war with uh, China and with Europe under Trump. And one of his main moves was to increase tariffs. And uh, uh, the companies that benefited were the domestic companies, but the people hurt most are the U.S. consumers by tariffs, uh, both in the availability and the prices for basic building materials. So, yep, I think there's a there's a large confluence of events that are leading to this type of inflation, where we look at you know. Uh, whether it's factories closing, but then you also have, you have reduced kind of customs agents. You have fewer people working, bringing in goods into the U.S., which slows down the process, which limits supply. You also have fewer people going back to work currently. And so because you have less people working to produce the goods, uh, it leads to a restriction on supply and therefore higher, higher prices as well. Another factor in the uh, bottlenecks are the transportation system. The U.S. ports are among the worst in the world for efficiency, for modernization, for restrictive labor practices. Uh, if you ever are in Long Beach, California, you can look out to the ocean and see, see tanker after tanker, car- uh, container carrying uh, a large ship ships from China. China accounts for 42% of all goods imported by ship into the United States. And the backlog is incredible. It's months and months and months. If you order something uh, like a, a metal building, it's a six-month back order to, to get something. If you order a vehicle, and uh, we'll talk a little bit later about the uh, microchip shortage and how that's affected the automotive industry and other industries. And the time frame we debate that here in the office between a year and two years for clearing that backlog. So uh, while we're used to lowering prices for TV and electronic goods, that's likely to reverse itself um, in, in, uh, for, for quite some time going forward. So, uh, So the question would be, the, the two questions that always come up with inflation are going to be, what does it mean for the economy having the inflation? And the other side of it is saying, is it something that's here to stay? So do you have a thought there, Rob? Um, well, you know, there's a difference between reported inflation and real inflation. They, they, there cannot be rep, uh, reported inflation that's over uh, the level that the Fed would have to take action to raise interest rates proactively. The the U.S. government cannot afford higher interest rates. The Biden budget depends on real interest rates being below zero for the next 10 years. 
the that's the short-term treasury bill, the 10-year bill. So uh, anything other than negative real interest rates is a disaster for the U.S. interest payments. And uh, so when we talk about inflation, we can talk about uh, your experience of inflation. If you're going to buy a new car or a college education or going to say false teeth, but we're not in the age group that needs false teeth. Uh, New hips, whatever. Um, And so we have a a great divergence. And I think that ties into the discussion about uh, gold and cryptocurrencies in that there's, I think, a widespread skepticism about government uh, reports uh, versus the experience of the cost of dental care. You go for a, t- a tooth cleaning and it's $140 when it was uh, $80, you know, five years ago or something like that. These are, I don't know if those are luxuries or, or not. Um, but so I think, I think there's a divergence there and there's a, there's a reason for the general skepticism about the media, about what you read and what you can believe in the media to extend to financial information. Uh, and and so we have to make a distinction between the two. And um, uh, 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 Mark, uh, who's on the call, was talking about the do- dollar inflation. Uh, we really have a situation where the dollar uh, may depreciate, and, and as it has already against the Chinese currency, because the there are other governments around the world who have also provided stimulus under the pandemic circumstances, but who are proactively changing their policies and not uh, increasing the size of their deficits and, and, and self-dealing, buying their own debt, which is, which is another topic. Uh, China, Canada, Korea, all have already started to tighten their monetary policies in ways that the U.S., actually just doesn't really have the option to do. So uh, uh, we, we have backed ourselves into a corner as a, as a country um, and really depend upon sort of continuing this, this, um, this scenario of low inflation. So uh, I can be long-winded, my apologies. No, no, I think that's good. And so do we see inflation pulling back over time? Obviously, Reported inflation is what we're talking about. It's not the the inflation that we as consumers see, but the reported inflation, the numbers that everyone worries about. Do we see that pulling back in the future as as more people get back to work or as some of the supply chain issues are resolved? Um, uh, again, I I think four percent is a is a kind of a made up number, and it can be pulled back when it's convenient. So. Mm-hmm. I don't, we don't make decisions based on, on what the consensus is or what the government's statistics are. Um, clearly, if you look at real estate prices, uh, uh, another area where there is incredible inflation and not that there's not decreasing real estate prices in, in some urban areas, because there certainly is, uh, Manhattan being sort of the prime example. Unfortunately, for uh, uh, some of our restaurants, um, I found uh, a really interesting stat there. So, when you look at the Case Shiller Home Price Index, 
you can, you know, according to wages and there's various inputs that go into that, New York is a cheaper market at this point than Phoenix is as a market to buy a home. So it, it, it's pretty stark to see kind of that that change where New York used to be one of the most expensive, and now you have it uh, just below Phoenix on the list. It's one of the lower of the the top twenty cities in the U.S. Well, and you when you look back to uh, the Great Recession, the same was true of New York at that time. Prices dropped, whereas San Francisco Bay Area, through all of these periods, including the Great Recession, prices did not drop particularly Marin has one of the highest priced region areas in the country, zip codes in the country, and prices went up in that area. So there's certain, I mean, there's certainly markets there. We see a, a consistent increase places where people are moving places like, like Denver or Phoenix or even Portland, Oregon. Good. So Sorry to- what does that mean for stocks and bonds? All of that. What's, what's, what's the takeaway? Mm-hmm. In terms of inflation. Right. So, yeah. So when we look at inflation, right, we've, I mean, it, we should have all in some ways been prepared for inflation. When we look at the last 12 years of the stock market, we've gone through an unprecedented time where we've seen, uh, prices on the, in the stock market and also the real estate market steadily increase, right? We've seen asset values increase over time with very little to no inflation, right? And so there's, there's some belief that there's kind of just a, a catch up occurring, but I, I mean, I would believe that with consistent, uh, consistent inflation that we would expect to see, you know, one, you're going to see kind of pressure on certain types of corporate earnings, uh, often, you know, corporations are transferring those expenses on to the consumers. And so it, it should be sort of muted, but typically as there's inflation, people become more weary of the stock market. Well, um, sometimes when there's high inflation, uh, stock prices go up because they're asset-based. And it's one of the considered to be a hedge against inflation, like real estate is that, that you, and, and that's very true for our asset allocation model at the Rickman Group, which is that, that owning assets is a better bet than owning debt. And, uh, uh, because not just because bonds are paying such a low interest rate, but because the assets will somehow keep up with inflation. Um, and, and that's probably a good time to talk about gold and cryptocurrencies as, uh, as uh, other potential options, uh, of, of keeping up with inflation or, um, especially cryptocurrencies as they're sort of prided on being outside of the government's control, at least so far. I, I, I know that there is talk and I, often have said that it's highly likely that the governments will get involved with cryptocurrencies and oh. kind of tracking and regulating them uh, for taxation and also for uh, prevent preventing money laundering purposes. Um, 
So it was very interesting that that ransomware money was tracked by the U.S. government, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that they recovered some of that money. So this whole uh, anonymity thing, it may be overblown, right? Uh, that, that if I mean, it's the general purpose of cryptocurrencies is to have a ledger with various points that can verify the ledger and track transactions. And so with with the right coding, you're able to track transactions anywhere. It's the idea is that it's outside of the government's control where they can't they can't choose to devalue or inflate the prices on their own. It's really supposed to be based on a pure supply and demand issue in terms of the valuation of cryptocurrencies. But the tracking is sort of a it's a misnomer in terms of the cryptocurrencies, because anytime you create a system that's made to to track transactions, they can be. They can be tracked. Right. So what is it? Let's talk about cryptocurrencies, even though we're, we are restricted from making recommendations about individual securities by virtue of the higher powers that control our investment lives. Um, uh, we, we still can talk about cryptocurrencies in general. And, and uh, Kyle often talks with clients about his sort of rational approach to buying them, uh, which is with kind of a disciplined, almost price blind approach. If you believe in cryptocurrencies, um, then, then the way of buying them is not all at once, but is dollar cost averaging in like, you know, like we suggest when you have a large amount of capital or when you're buying a mutual fund uh, that, that you're arithmetically uh, averaging your cost, whether the market is up or down. Do you still believe in that approach, Kyle? I do still believe in that approach. And I think even it's an even more important approach as compared to using dollar cost averaging for mutual funds or indexes because the price volatility within cryptocurrencies is, is much greater. And so when we see the movement, I guess it would have been it, Bitcoin, as an example, peaked, I believe, around three months ago at around $60,000. And that's when interest in it peaks as well. And most people are trying to buy in when it's high. And it's it's making sure that you have a steady approach to buying an asset like that because we've seen it since that point. We've seen it drop 50%. I think today it trades around 36000 So it was at sixty. Uh, I think – the other day it was at 30,000. Today it's at 36,000. So it moves so quickly. Having that discipline approach is really, really important for an investor. And the mechanisms for buying it are, um, are easier and likely to get easier uh, for the, the average person. When Kyle and I first looked at it several years ago through a friend of his, it was it was too complicated for us, even though it was what three hundred dollars for. A bit. <laughs> it was it was very what compared to the price now, very affordable is how I would describe it. But your money had to go in what was called a dark pool, which means you basically sent your money into a black box and you hope that the Bitcoin came out the other end. Essentially, as you do that, so you don't move the market in Bitcoin. And uh, it's become much more advanced since that point. Yeah. Good. Um, uh, why don't we pause and see if there are any questions for people who are 
who are either visually or uh, email collected with, uh, connected with us uh, at this point. And any, any, uh, any questions from the, from the gallery, the peanut gallery? I think one of the things that people were asking about, um, and we've been talking about in the office as well, is that impacts the reopening, inflation, et cetera, is sort of how the economy is going to open up, what industries are impacted. We've been talking about that even here locally, um, you know, service versus others. We've been reading about uh, manufacturing that can't get enough employees. So I think... I think that's and, – and I read an article this week, Deutsche Bank was saying that, well, they actually don't think inflation will be an issue for a long period of time because you only reopen once, uh, which I thought was interesting and counter to a number of the other analysts. Um, but I know a number of people are sort of, you know, interested in in that topic of how the economy is going to reopen. Good. Um well, it's uh, kind of intuitive that travel, the travel, the air, air travel is coming back big time. If you, if you do any air travel, the, the planes are packed, ticket prices are up. Um, uh, we're planning to go to California for some business meetings. We can't find a rental car. Don't exist. They're, they, they sold their fleets. The, the demand is, is, is so high that, um, Kyle said we're going to hit from the airport to, uh, we're going to have to, uh, it, it, it really is amazing to see that you fly into one of the largest airports in the world in LAX and there's actually zero rental cars available with reopening. And I, and I think it's, it's going to have a major impact on people, right? Who, who, who are planning trips and somewhat short-sighted in their planning and, you know, the week before going to rent a car and, and realizing that your five days of rental car are going to cost you a thousand dollars. Exactly right. Yeah. So, so that's one industry which, you know, had a steep downturn. It's, they call it a V-shaped recovery, right? That's where it's a steep decline followed by a very steep ascent. Um, and uh, the survivors, and if you look at the stock prices of the airlines, you'll, you'll see their stock prices reflect that shape of, of the recovery and the anticipated recovery. Um, whereas um, uh, what industries uh, don't look like they're going to recover, um, uh, 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 cruise uh, I don't know what the cruise. Yeah, cruise lines. When we look at them, and uh, anyone who who we can see wants to raise their hand if they're interested in getting on a cruise ship anytime soon. Uh, okay, I, I see no hands at the moment. Uh, or into a retirement home, right? Like a group. Uh, exactly, or a retirement community is another area. And those industries have, have, have are looking at long term structural changes. But we we have seen, if we're just talking about the general market, the cruise lines actually trade at higher levels than they did pre-pandemic currently, just because they're, they became uh, momentum factors. And so people are piling money and believing that they're going to benefit from the reopening. But uh, 
we would have questions about that. We only have a few momentum traders here on the call with us. Uh, <laughs> and there's plenty of opportunity to jump in with the crowd on that with a, I, I can't even remember the acronyms that people use for that or the, the mechanisms. Uh, but there's, there's always a, there's always a, a way to make money in the short term and uh, put it at risk in the long term, uh, uh, which, which we've yet to see. Um, but I'd like to have bring up something. Um, in the housing industry, there's the new uh, technology of 3D printing, and there may be some opportunities in that area. Uh, the, are, the thing is, is the equipment's rather expensive, but they can build the house in, within a, less than a week, and <clears throat> they now can build two-story houses with 3D, and they're uh, still have to pour a slab and put the plumbing in, and you still have to use lumber on the interior of the house. But they say that they, there's such a tremendous savings in time to, that it takes to build a four or five thousand square foot house that, or a thousand, fifteen hundred square foot house that, um, they're, they're able to compete in a market where everything else is really expensive. They're doing this in Austin, Texas now. And probably over in Arizona. It's a, it's a great point, Steve. That's actually a conversation Rob and I had earlier today where the, basically what you see is when you see times like this where you see major constraints on, on the supply of workers or the supply of materials, often what can come from that is, is innovation where as a, as a counter to that, people figure out ways to cut out more workers. It's like the, the screen you see when you go into a McDonald's now, not that I've been in a McDonald's for a while, but you walk into a McDonald's and you can order from the screen, which cuts down on the number of cashiers needed. It's just small innovations that people start to make or even large major innovations that start to make the changes to deal with some of the issues that we're facing. The, the issue of, of technology and its introduction into the workplace brings us a, sort of a crossover to the real estate market, which is talking about, will there be a return to the office? Um, uh, or will the, the technological advances, not that we experienced them here today as starting up our conference call, are, uh, 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 but we had a backup and hopefully that, that worked. Um, which industries are, are ripe for innovation or reductions in the need for offices? Uh, because that, that, you know, there's an assumption that no one's going to go back to Manhattan, right? Whereas two years ago, the assumption was that Manhattan apartments can do nothing but go up. The same thing with San Francisco. So we're always challenging the basic assumptions when you think that something has to happen that it will go up, that, that there are factors that will contradict that conclusion. For example, the, the, the price of Apple stock or Amazon stock or any of the other sort of tech giants that have dominated the pandemic uh, uh, era. And the assumption is they will continue to dominate um, uh, um, 
we're always uh, uh, challenging ourselves to think, well, what if that isn't true? What is the right investment strategy to take some profits off the table, uh, which is something that we have very limited success in convincing people to to sell the tech darlings of the last whatever decade almost. Um, uh, so that's that's always an opportunity to separate people from their money eventually. Yeah, but it's, and it's it's almost similar to the the Bitcoin conversation and saying that it's it's largely about having a disciplined strategy around these things. Is you may have tech darlings that you love, but if we look at kind of the the big tech this year, it's it's very much lagging the broader market this year. And if you saw the run up and as they kind of moved past their 200 day moving average last year, sort of the natural pullback is almost expected. We should, we should see that occur because it's healthy to occur. And so there's never, I mean, there are times where maybe you shouldn't take profits, but it certainly was a good opportunity to take profits and have some discipline in your, in your investment strategies. Great. Why don't we uh, turn to a discussion about the uh, sort of the Biden budget proposals, the proposal for a global corporate tax rate, um, and uh, and and that will lead us to a discussion about the deficit, of course. Um, not that anybody wants to talk about the deficit, since there's clearly nothing to do about it. Unless, unless somebody here has a suggestion and we're, we're offering prizes for suggestions about how to cut the U.S. deficit. We might give out like maybe a little piece of a Bitcoin or something like that or, uh, you know, some, some palpable. I'm just joking, of course. Uh, our sensors would tell we, us. We, we probably have to run that by compliance. We, we might have some. <laughs> we might have some uh, raccoon branded stickers or mugs. We'll we'll send out. That's a, about as good as we can do, Rob. We have a. There's a sticker. We could we could send those out for a memento of 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 New Mexico. Very nice. On the phone. Very- there's New Mexico. It ain't new. It ain't, and it ain't, new, and it ain't Mexico. Well, that's, isn't that right, Steve? Yes. All right. So let's talk about, uh, some of the, the Biden activities and how they might affect the markets, which is really mostly what we're interested in talking about. Not just, we're not, we're not arguing pro or con or Democrat, Republican or whoever else is out there. But what is likely going to be the impact of uh, the Biden administration, uh, uh, their policies towards immigration, um, towards infrastructure spending, and that's an air quote about infrastructure, um, uh, the, the sort of the funding of sort of social programs. Uh, it's estimated that a third of the budget uh, as proposed by by the Biden administration, will remain unfunded. That is, it, it will not be covered. So it's six trillion dollars, two trillion unfunded, uh, just to um, and and the global tax rate 
is part of the proposal of how to how to fund the the first two thirds of 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 that. Um, right now, in case you're interested in how do we fund our deficits, the um, the Federal Reserve has bought 56% of the U.S. treasuries that have been brought to market over the past five years. In essence, we're, we're, we're funding it based on our own issuance of uh, government obligations. So the government issues debt, I guess, uh, and uh, then uh, the Fed uh, buys the debt. The, the Fed now owns uh, 76% of the U.S. debt. 76%. Um, uh, the Fed is agnostic as far as what interest rate it earns <laughs> because it's, it's just passing, you know, money back and forth to different accounts within, within the greater complex. And, uh, so, the Biden budget, uh, there's, you know, some debate. Does it matter whether the budget is unfunded or not? And it's not really as, obviously it's not a simple question. If economists can't agree upon it, who are we to opine, uh, about it? There are people who feel like we can, we can have unfunded liabilities forever and that it, and that it's good and necessary for the society to fund social programs. And it's very hard to argue on a, on a union scale, on a human level, why there shouldn't be, you know, childcare and all, all the things that the Biden budget, which are obviously appealing, uh, uh, from, from a humanistic perspective. Um, uh, and, you know, what, what danger I, you know, uh, We've talked so long about it that it's, it's almost like a broken record. Well, will the piper be paid? Does the piper need to be paid or not? And if the piper has to be paid, what does that look like? What's, what is the investment strategy that deals with, um, a deficit that is unfunded? And, and, and so uh, I won't. I won't, uh, like I used to kind of go on and on about it because I've been told not to. And I, and I think that's good advice. Uh, uh, but it's still a relevant question for, um, for discussing. I I would just say it, it's fascinating to see. I think, you know, since I've been here and we've, we've been talking about this issue kind of perpetually. And we talk about the issue, we talked about the issue when the federal deficit was 14 trillion. And we looked, and that, I guess that would have been in, that's at the end of 2014, where we saw it at that level. And then now we move to where we're at today, still asking the same question as how do we deal with this number when the number is obviously significantly higher. And so we see it today at, at nearing 24 trillion. Now, so it's, you know, with, with continued pushes to increase that, right, with a, with an infrastructure package or additional stimulus to states or to individuals, we see that number continuing to rise. Right. So the question is, does it matter? If it does matter, when will it matter? And what can an investor do about it to protect their basically purchasing power? 
because the nominal dollars, whether there's inflation or deflation, are only relative to what you can buy, right? That's 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 the important after tax, after inflation. What's the purchasing power of of your asset? And um, again, it goes back to the discussion of cryptocurrency and somewhat of gold because gold is the typical uh, uh, haven versus uh, unfunded government debt. I mean that 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 was gold's purpose. Uh, was to impose a, a sense of discipline on, um, you know, on, on, on the, on the leadership, uh, 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 but we're past that point now with the, the, you know, electronic economy, um, and markets. So, um, I think the interest rate discussion is, you know, is, is always tied into this and clearly, uh, 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 interest rates have gone lower since the budget was, uh, 14 trillion than now at 24 trillion. And there's no logic to that, right? There's, there's no logic to increasing that deficit by 60% and having interest rates go down. Um, so. I mean, there's, there's a lot of logic. The logic is that you can't. You can't afford it if you don't push interest rates down. You can't grow that deficit as much if you don't have lower interest rates because you're, you're essentially borrowing more, I would think. That's not, that's not an explanation. That's a justification for why Mm -hmm. it's happening is that you can't afford to have higher interest rates, which, which is true. So, um, um, you know, the, the competition between U.S. and China, which is very real, and you just saw the uh, bill that uh, Congress passed to invest in technology, right, in artificial, I was going to say insemination, but that's the wrong word. It's uh, artificial intelligence. They both start with eyes, so they kind of get mixed up in, in, in my parlance. Um, uh, He's and, a part-time rancher, just, just in case anyone was curious. Uh, no, I'm trying to see if we have any real ranchers on the phone. Uh, so I, um, uh, Jeff might be the closest right now. Yeah. Oh, uh, sheep. Um, so, uh, right. How hard is it to buy bonds today, Kyle? What's it's, what's, yeah, it's, it's extremely hard to buy bonds that make sense on a risk adjusted basis, right? And so we can, we can buy plenty of bonds if you don't mind getting a half a percent return on an eight year bond. So it's, it's very easy to buy a bond that's going to create negative returns for you in the long term. And so it's, it's very hard to buy bonds that are worthwhile to own. So that takes one of the legs of the traditional investment philosophy not all the way off the table but somewhat off the table right stocks bonds cash what mm-hmm. else is there? there's gold inflation there's gold there's gold. real estate right and commodities uh, exactly commodities are very interesting as an inflation hedge as well they talk about the end of oil right and uh, we, we have many clients who have oil royalties and, and the price of oil has come back 
very strongly, right? And as that's, uh, we're not quite sure if, if that's included in the government's inflation numbers or not. So that actually, you know, do electric vehicles present a long-term challenge to the price of oil? How's that for a question? It's a good question. It's, you know, oil has a lot of other applications. We don't, we don't build roads without oil, right? So the roads your, your vehicle drives on requires that oil. The tires, which your vehicle drives on as well, also require large amounts of oil to produce. Uh, but it's likely some of that dependency, you know, will change. Right. But does any, yeah, does anyone feel that, because uh, electronic vehicle industry has attracted a great deal of attention, right? What's that? What's that? We have the big, the, the news with Lordstown, Lord, Lordstown Motors today was the, the big news or yesterday, I suppose. It reminds me of the aircraft alternatives, right? Where, where in Albuquerque, you had that, that, that plane manufacturer ellipse or eclipse. Eclipse. Yes, correct. Eclipse. And now you have these, uh, sub, subsonic or supersonic planes in development. Did, did everyone see that, that, that American Airlines or someone is ordering for the end yeah. of the day? These, these, uh, I don't know where they're going to go. Why is everyone in such a hurry anyway? Like, why don't you sit back and relax? The, the speed, the speed of everything is increasing. Well, it's a long, takes you a lot of relaxation to fly from here to Europe now. And, uh, if you could just do it without the big price increase, I would be first one on the jet. You could ride with, uh, with, uh, with Bezos on that, on that space thing and just, you know, like hitch a ride and drop into your location too. That would be another alternative. Right. Uh, you know, kind of tag along with Jeff Bezos into outer space. Um, we'll see how that goes. I don't know. Is there anyone here who would like to be like on the first commercial ride into outer space? Nope. I'm all about like going into outer space and seeing the earth. I would, I would love that, but to be on the first one, no way. Most of our kids are still too young. We can't take that chance. Right. Well, we haven't received any questions um, by email. Does anybody have a question that they'd like to just bring up to the group? Um, I would. Uh, our family's uh, a producer of fresh class three milk. And uh, also, in our newest venture is in goat milk. And we saw that during the pandemic, when the restaurants uh, closed up, it impacted the pricing for goat milk. And so now we're seeing the restaurant industry reopen. And and the milk that we're producing, goat milk that we're producing, is for goat cheese. And But we're not seeing the price for goat tree, cheese go up. But you're seeing the price for everything in the restaurant going up. And uh, so as a producer, we're not, it doesn't seem like there's any inflated numbers for the price of 
that a producer is being paid, but through our economy, uh, there seems to be plenty of inflation. And so uh, this goes back to the supply and demand. I guess um, the supply is greater than demand at this point, unless you guys will get out and go order some goat cheese at your favorite restaurant. No, then go ahead. You know, so, Kyle grew up in the natural food business. I did. You know, I was, I was talking to a client of ours who, who is a, uh, a real rancher out in California. And he was talking about the same issue with the price of cattle and beef. And so basically what's happened is he's actually receiving lower prices on his cattle even though the end prices we as consumers are paying are greatly inflated. And so what happens is there's the bottleneck in the processing, both moving the cattle, so shipping the cattle, also the meat processing facilities, which are having issues beyond even just the, the recent issues. I mean, they're, they've had, you know, trouble retaining employees, dealing with, with wages and such, wage inflation, and then, then moving from the actual production to the restaurants has become more expensive. And so it's, it's a very interesting kind of phenomenon where the actual producer of the cattle is receiving lower prices, but we as the consumer are kind of down the line receiving much higher prices. And I would imagine it, it, it falls into a sort of similar realm with, you know, the cheese industry. Right, where there's certain places along the line and the bottleneck which are impacting prices for the end consumer, but likely aren't benefiting the producer of the raw product. Mm-hmm. That's, that's... You've been in the dairy business a long time. Uh, and... Yeah, the dairy industry is finally pricing for for raw milk has finally moved um, up. And so the dairy, dairy industry as a whole is doing better. Uh, but the, well, the farmers in general have this problem of, of feast and famine. That is when, when circumstances are, are, are right, they can make a lot of money. And when they're not, they, they lose money. So it, it's a very volatile kind of a situation and demand. You know, demand for goat cheese, I'm sure, is uh, because it's a health-related item. It, the long-term uh, uh, trends are good for goat. I'm sure that's one of the reasons why you and your group have moved into that. Um, uh, I, the the cost of of complying with regulations, and as Kyle was pointing out, moving the product to the consumer, like having a, a and when we had our farm in North Carolina, we had the same issues is how do you get the actual product to the consumer without paying 16 different middle people to process it, transport it, insure it, refrigerate it, sell it, right? Uh, package it, all of those things that, that add costs and, um, and, uh, you know, um, and, and each one having their own regulations. So it, it's a very challenging industry. Um, producing anything is very challenging in our country. And that's, uh, there's the labor price. There's the cost of compliance with regulation. 
there's the availability of, of, of supplies and the transportation costs. Um, I just say, you know, we're seeing that. I read a report on the kind of the broad real estate market and they're seeing that same, a shift there in terms of moving from, you know, retail space to industrial spaces, places where goods can be produced or manufactured. Uh, that's sort of the, the trend in the real estate market where everyone's moving there because it seems to be kind of a, a more favorable industry to be in. It, it, we have firsthand experience of that in Asheville, North Carolina, where uh, some of the projects that we've invested in, um, uh, the demand for exactly what Kyle was referring to, the demand for light manufacturing or something is, is huge. Uh, um, and the availability is reduced because as people move to an area and, 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 and the real estate is taken up for residential or it becomes more expensive to comply with things, then people who have real businesses like fixing trucks or whatever, it, you know, people don't want them in their neighborhood because of the noise or the smell. And so they get more and more isolated and the real estate that they were on becomes more expensive and they just can't afford the per square foot costs of the real estate of the carrying costs. And so there is this, this need and, and the, in the job market that we were talking about earlier, there's a huge demand for any kind of tradespeople nationwide. If, if you want to have a job plumbing, being a plumber or electrician or an assistant, um, there is a, there's a humongous demand for it. And, um, I don't know. I don't quite grasp the, um, and, and maybe that will change over time with high school students coming out of the pandemic. Uh, the, when we were talking about higher education as an industry as well, the fact that that has seen incredible changes that are not done yet, not just because of the pandemic, but because of, you know, the way that the universities are run and the pressures that they're under from various forces that they be, just become less relevant overall. And, 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 um, uh, uh, there's an article today somewhere about some, some business owner saying he used to hire Ivy, Ivy League students and he doesn't want them anymore because they don't, not just because of the skill level, but because of the work ethic or their requirements. And, uh, you know, Nijoni, who you heard from earlier, is from one of those Ivy League schools, though she doesn't like to talk about it too much. They're, the the What's their mascot up there in New Hampshire? They used to be green, but what are they now? Yeah, it's Go Big Green now. We used to have, like, keggy to keg, but that's, you know, not allowed anymore because... <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to they're trying to tell people that we're not a drinking school basically <laughs> classing it up yes exactly Dartmouth also used to have a, an Indian as the mascot yes they did they did because Gary my brother who's on the phone and I we used to go and play sports up there and you know get all of the swag from Dartmouth College during the tournaments and they were and they're you know that's that, that's neither here nor there. The the uh, um, uh, that aspect to it, but the the we we were very happy to to hire Nijoni, who's local here, 
uh, from New Mexico and her family's in Arizona. And, um, uh, so, um, just the, the kind of jobs that are available, the mismatch between the skills, the motivation and the jobs that are available is, is, is a very, very big factor in the country's ability to have functioning services like all of us who live in our own homes, right? When we have someone we need to fix something because we can't fix a darn thing ourselves. Well, most of us, I shouldn't, there are probably people on the, on the call who are very handy like Jeff. Um, but it's just darn hard to, to, to not just build new buildings with, with construction workers. And that, of course, ties into the uh, immigration. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Kyle. I'm sure you have. Well, something. well, I mean, I guess if you're, if we're moving into the conversations on immigration, we, we saw the issue even pre-pandemic, right, where we had the unemployment rate. I think it had gotten down to 3.6% or something in that range there. And we essentially had more job openings than we did employees to fill that. And so there's there was a broad range of job openings and there weren't enough people to fill that. And, and we're moving sort of into that same territory, although our unemployment rate is higher now. What we have is we're basically posting more jobs than we have willing bodies to fill at the moment. And that sparks a lot of that debate in terms of who's going to do the jobs and, and how do we get people to do them, which is, you know, in part an immigration issue. It is. Um... We have a question. Great. Um Someone had asked if you could speak about Biden's threat to close the real estate tax loophole 1031 and how that might impact investments. Great question. Um, I'll add on to that question, sort of the proposed uh, um, elimination of the step up in basis upon death for uh, uh, taxes, for to, to levy capital gain taxes on people's assets, unappreciated uh, I'm sorry, appreciated assets on, uh, so, um, the, um, the 1031 is a, clearly a boon for real estate investors and people organize their lives around 1031 exchanges, which is where you can, you can sell a piece of commercial real estate with not pay tax as long as you buy something that's, that's more expensive with the proceeds within a certain amount of time. And, and that only works, uh, just happens, uh, with this estate step up in basis, because, uh, if, if, if you're, if you buy and sell real estate and you end up owning a million dollar property with a very low basis because you've rolled it over through 1031 exchanges and you die holding it, then your heirs don't have to pay capital gain tax because they then get a step up to the million dollars at your date of death. Um, and, uh, so those two go hand in hand, really. Uh, and clearly it's a, it's a loophole. Uh, just like remember when Romney was running for president, the whole carried interest where venture capital, private equity people don't pay income tax on on their income because they take it in the form of um, uh, capital gains 
just because of the way they got the laws written. So there's no question that all of that is unfair to normal working people who don't have the opportunity to, the, to, to use those kinds of tax mechanisms. And um, I, I think clearly, I, I, you know, my feelings about it don't really matter, but that it, from a fairness perspective, it, they're, they're good ideas. Will they get enacted? I don't think there's really a chance in one in, one in 10 that they get enacted. Because, um, uh, the, the, uh, those are the people that fund politics, uh, whether they're Republican or Democrat, that's, that's where the money comes from. I would also say that the step up in basis creates, uh, it's basically, it's helpful to the markets, right? It allows for transactions. So where you have a lot of people say, so you have Jeff Bezos, right, who owns billions of dollars in Amazon stock. And without a step up in basis, there's never an incentive to transact any of those shares, right? They're held held perpetually, right? Like why would you sell your shares and pay taxes if you don't need the, the money? Or if you own real estate and it produces some income, why would you ever sell that real estate and pay a large capital gains on it. So when you get the step up, at least it creates the ability to transact shares or sell certain pieces of real estate. I, I don't agree with that. I, I think it, Good. it, it causes people to hold on waiting for that, you know, someone to die in the family. Whereas if they were going to pay tax and they didn't have the loophole, they'd have to make a business decision each year about whether to hold the asset or not based on the investment return and not based on the tax code. When the tax code drives behavior, you know, it's done probably with good intentions, but, but the impact is generally it favors one set of people over, over another. It favors a few over the many. And, and, and that's the way that our, you know, whatever they say, not that anyone can understand our tax code, including accountants. How many, how many people do you know are going into accounting? How many young people? You know, the, the people our age or even, you know, like, you know, millennials or I don't know what the generations are called anyway. Just, it's just darn hard because it's such a hassle to understand it that, 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 um, it's just so complex. That, that the priorities of a just fair system, a simple fair system, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, pontificate about it in any ways, but since the discussion was, uh, uh, is the 1031, is the end of that, uh, program going to happen? It, I don't think it will happen. Will carried interest be charged? I, I don't think so. I, I think that they should be, those, those loopholes should be close. You know, if there is an end to a step up in basis, people will figure out a way around that. And I already know how to get around that with the proper estate planning uh, for people. And and um, uh, the, the answer is you give it away during your lifetime and, you know, and then you're done. So they'll, they would have to tax capital gains upon all transfers to make it fair right to make to do an irrevocable transfer during a lifetime would have to incur a tax 
And, uh, and so then the next step would be just never to take possession in anything but an irrevocable trust, right? That when you buy an asset, you only buy it in a vehicle that never dies. That would be what the wealthy would do going forward. So it doesn't really matter how they change the laws. They're, 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 we'll always figure workarounds because that's what we get paid to do. So. So maybe we'll, we'll open up for questions one last time. Uh, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit just about semiconductors and, and cars for a minute, just to kind of wrap up with a fun topic, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it open for questions one last time here. If anyone has burning questions or not burning questions, just questions. Uh, I, I think the, just to finish up on the 1031, uh, nor, you know, sort of regular people that own homes, when they go to sell a house or inherit a house, uh, everyone has, an individual has a $250,000 exclusion from capital gains. So a couple can sell their home and have a, a half a million dollars of gain with, with no tax. So, um, uh, uh, it would, you know, I, I would imagine if they got anywhere close to passing that law, they would, they would exempt personal residences from, and personal residences are not 1031 exchanges. Anyway. Uh, but the step up, uh, basis, you know, they, they will fiddle with it to death so that, uh, so that you need a computer and, and, uh, someone, uh, uh, to interpret it for you. So sorry to interrupt you, but. No, you're good. But we're just giving people more time to come up with their questions. If we don't, don't have anything. We'll let, we'll let Anthony drive us into the, the future with his, his questions or thoughts on, uh, semiconductors. Yes. Thank you, Kyle. So it, it, it just really relates back to supply and demand that we were talking about earlier. And I'm sure, you know, most of you have heard about this. I've been reading <clears throat> quite a bit about it, but just the, the current microchip shortage that we've run into during the pandemic and just wondered, Kyle, if you could kind of briefly discuss what it means for the economy and how we move forward from it. Great. Yeah. So as, as we kind of move into the, the future world of self-driving cars and televisions and cell phones and almost everything we do or everything we interact with these days includes some type of semiconductor in it. Uh, whether you, you realize it or not, our, our watches, our headsets, and in particular, our, our vehicles, the, almost the most. And so, uh, this year we've run into a, a major semiconductor shortage. And, uh, we touched on it briefly at the beginning, but, uh, there's been a, a few things that have cur- occurred, right? We have, fewer people working in the manufacturing facilities. But uh, something I didn't know about that Anthony taught me was that the vials which the uh, the COVID vaccines are shipped in, they are made of silicon, which is the primary part of semiconductors. And so there's been a huge kind of demand for this product, which has been kind of competing between semiconductors and, and getting people COVID vaccines. And I guess we can sort of guess which one of those was deemed uh, more mission critical 
over the past year. And then we ran into some other issues, right? We have supply chain issues for products. The, I know Karen gave us that. I think around 50% of semiconductors are coming from Taiwan. Is that correct, Karen? She yeah, gave I me think a head shake. A, I think it's a little more than that at this point. Yep. So even more than 50% have to, have to leave a foreign country to, to even get to the U.S. And then we had large manufacturing facilities in Texas as well. And as everyone knows, Texas experienced a great freeze, uh, this winter, which, uh, semiconductors require great amounts of water and basically the state restricted the amount of water these companies could use. And then with major power outages and blackouts, it further restricted the supply. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing these, everything being delayed. Uh, Rob had read statistics that show one year that we expect the, the shortage to last up to two years is sort of what, what Anthony's point was, is saying that we may not see a return to normal on semiconductors for two years, which which creates a lot of other issues. So uh, each one of you that's put in your pre-orders for your, your Tesla, you all are going to be waiting much longer uh, for, for the actual delivery of that Tesla, or even we're actually seeing it more so with the major U.S. auto manufacturers. And so the, the bigger issues are at, at the Ford and GM level. Uh, even your gas-powered vehicles really relying on these semiconductors, and and it, it just it has an impact in terms of the the cost of goods. So what we're paying for things, as Rob mentioned, you may pay more for your TV next year. It also has an impact on your access to a vehicle. Uh, auto vehicle sales were kind of on a they've been trending up. They've been on a tear, and as people are getting back to work, and also spending their their savings so we we've seen those auto vehicle sales really increase and right now what's happening is we're seeing prices increase because there's limited supply of those vehicles that people are trying to buy and so sales have actually tapered off because access to vehicles is is less which impacts your you know ability to purchase a vehicle to get to work or or do other things uh and then it has a trickle down into the used car market as well. Um, well, and one of the other interesting stats that I saw is that because parts are limited, auto manufacturers are actually making their nicer. They're using the parts they have to make their nicer models rather than the cheaper models. Yeah, you have an incentive to sell your your premium vehicles. Well, it's very hard to find basic cars anymore from U.S. car manufacturers if they're not like little SUVs, um, mm-hmm. unless they're electric vehicles. So what do we think about the electric uh, vehicle industry as a potential investment, Kyle? Yeah, I think, you know, there's the electrical vehicle industry is a really large market and we're seeing that move of the major U.S. auto manufacturers move into move into electric vehicles. We're also seeing the foreign producers move into electric vehicles as well. I think the the issue we see, and it relates directly back to semiconductors, is that you have these markets that run on very thin margins. Auto manufacturing is 
is a is a low margin business. So your inputs greatly impact the amount of money you can make without raising your prices. And so as we see that, eventually it just becomes the vehicle, but we all believe electric vehicles are going to be the way of the future, or many of us believe that. We may not all believe it, but it's likely to be the future. But the question is, does that make it a, a good investment, which is sort of the the item that's up for debate, right? Is just because everyone's producing electric vehicles, does it just become the new auto industry, which runs on low margins? And, and it's, you know, that's likely to be the case over time. It's just whether or not there's companies that become better at producing and manufacturing and, and making money from it. Well, you heard it there from Kyle first. And I'm not sure what he said, but I think it's well, well. The, the answer is that it may be the way of the future. It just may not be a good investment. There you go. I like that. So um, we have five minutes left. And uh, if you have any questions that you're too shy to ask, you can, you can um, email Kyle or Contessa or Najoni or Anthony or Karen or Jeff. Um, Does anybody see a world event of China and Taiwan having a conflict? That's a, that's a great question. We've I listened to something about that yesterday, actually, the China's maritime activities and just their, their land and their maritime, um, um, roads and, and pathways and where they're moving in more and basically how they've positioned their self, themselves in the waters around Taiwan and nuclear positions that basically, if something were to happen, make it um, sort of worthless for the U.S. to step in and try to defend. It seems like it changed world dynamics in these, uh, um, in, in the what we're talking about with the uh, uh, semiconductors, because that's where they're manufactured. Mm-hmm. Right. Taiwan is definitely a prize. Uh, extremely well-run, efficient, productive. Um, you'll notice that the U.S. has stepped up its relations with Taiwan of late, so the U.S. is is not likely to back down or renege on its commitments, whether it's for semiconductor purposes or otherwise. I do not believe that China will precipitate a, a conflict over Taiwan. I think they're they're... They, they get benefit from posturing in terms of their uh, ability to both bully and to incentivize other countries to join their trade blocks. With uh, uh, You can see Russia has been quite successful in its ability to project its influence far beyond its, its uh, military or financial power by building that gas line you know, because they got the German government on their side, um, there's no question they'll use it as political leverage. Um, and China, uh, it's all about long-term leverage. So I don't see there being actual conflict, Steve. 
in, in Taiwan, but I think it's very likely that the rhetoric will ratchet up and you could see Japan rearm with the U.S.'s uh, concurrence. And, um, uh, you know, you don't hear much about North Korea these days uh, uh, in terms of how sort of front and center it was uh, with uh, the, the two leaders, Trump and, and the guy up there playing off each other to be on, on the center stage. So China is, is, is very strategic about what they're doing, they're very long-term. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult call to make, you know, the, their biggest their biggest advantage is financial uh, in the sense that they are, they are lenders and they're not borrowers. And that's, uh, the U.S. has in many ways the most advantage over China in terms of uh, technological and, and, uh, strategic, uh, um, positions, but, but China is, is not in debt to outsiders like the U.S., so that, that remains to be seen how that plays out. Okay. Great. So, uh, we're coming to the end here, and so I would just, I would encourage everyone who has additional questions to reach out to us. We're always around. We're always available for, for a call to talk about any kind of anything that remains that we didn't answer today. And, uh, we appreciate your attendance if there's nothing else. The Raccoon Group is comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in this document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author, do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.